Yeah. Anyway, there's this little square that was George Washington's square. I mean, literally, it's a square. And actually, everybody had their own little seating place, and they had their names on it so that they knew where to sit. And so in, if anybody walked in, they would not sit in George Washington's spot. And we're sort of the same way, except for we don't have our names on our spots, right? You know, everybody knows where they're going on Sunday morning, you know, except for the visitors who come in, and if they sit in someone's seat, watch out. No. We're, we're actually very welcoming. So anyway, enough of that. We're in John chapter 16. We're in the upper room discourse, although very probably by this point, the upper room discourse is typically viewed as John 13 through John 17. But the probability here is at the end of chapter 14, they left the upper room and are on a walking journey through the streets of Jerusalem out of the gates, across the Kidron Valley into, ultimately, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, of course, will pray three times. So probably this is not in the upper room, but it's still that final message that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And I've said this before, but it's a very important point to stop and ponder. Jesus is the Son of God. He has come to the earth in the flesh, and he has chosen 12 men to be his apostles, those whom he will send out into the world with the message of the gospel. Now, there are many others who are following after Jesus, but these 12 were his very close companions. And within that 12, there was even a closer inner circle of Peter, James, and John. But these are the ones that Jesus is going to send forth with the commission to proclaim the gospel. The reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to the earth, lived a sinless life, died upon a cross, resurrected from the dead on the third day, and that through faith in him we can have new life. We can be reconciled unto God. That's the simple message of the gospel. You know, it's, it's such an amazing book that I'm holding in my hand here. So deep that we will probably be spending eternity exploring the words in these pages. And yet so simple that a little child over in King's Kids can understand it and be convicted by the Holy Spirit of their need for it. It's an amazing book. So very important message. And this morning, we're going to focus in on what Jesus is teaching. We'll we'll be in John chapter 16, but we'll also be skipping around a little bit in the Upper Room Discourse, looking at what Jesus taught his disciples about the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is a part of the triune God, but probably the the one personality within the, the triune God that we understand the least We all can envision God the Father, as it says in Revelation chapter 4, seated upon the throne. That's an image that we can connect with. Of course, Jesus, who walked the earth and lived among us, we can relate to him. He had brothers. He had sisters. He had a family. He had conflict. He hungered. He thirsted. He experienced everything we experienced. We can connect to that. But a Holy Spirit... What does that mean? Have you ever stopped to think about 
who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit is connected to and involved in your life. It's, of course, a spirit, sort of an ethereal concept, a little bit difficult for us to take a hold of. But Jesus is telling his disciples in verse 7 of John chapter 16, he says, very truly I tell you, it is for your good or to your advantage that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is comforting his disciples with the understanding that though he is going away to the Father, though he is going to die, be resurrected, and ascend into heaven, Jesus is going to send the, disi- or the disciples the Holy Spirit, the advocate. Now, in the Greek, the word there translated advocate is parakletos. And literally, parakletos means one who comes alongside to help. So he's the helper. He's also known, this is also translated as the comforter. And you can imagine the disciples being comforted by the idea that the third person in the Trinity would come to them and be a part of their lives. Well, I want us here this morning to understand that just as the Holy Spirit was with the twelve, so too the Holy Spirit is with each one of us. A parakletos, an advocate, someone who is with us, but also, it says in in John uh, chapter 14, he is also in us. So the Holy Spirit, para, comes alongside of us, but the Holy Spirit also is in us. In, In other words, he dwells within each one of us. That's part of what regenerates us and makes us new creation new creations, is the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Further, though, Jesus told the disciples, he said, tarry tarry in Jerusalem until you have received the power from on high. The Holy Spirit, he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, will come upon you and you will receive power to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the Holy Spirit is with us wherever we go. The Holy Spirit has come inside of us and dwells within us. And the Holy Spirit also comes upon us, overflows us, gives us power in our lives. Now, I don't know all of the challenges that you are experiencing in your life right now, but I can imagine because I've talked with several of you, that you're going through some difficult stuff, challenging circumstances. I was just talking with one of my brothers here this morning who has been going through some extraordinarily difficult physical challenges. And he said, I need a respite. I need, some, I need a break. But the break, oftentimes, if we will understand it and uh, appreciate the 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 presence of the holy spirit is exactly that the holy spirit with us in us and upon us he is our advocate our comforter the one who comes alongside but also the holy spirit is described by Jesus as the spirit of truth in john chapter 14 verse 17 he says the spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot accept because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, he will live with you and be in you. So he calls him the spirit of truth. And then later in John chapter 16, once again, in in verse uh, 14, I believe. Yeah, no, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth? Who is the truth? Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, what he is saying is the Holy Spirit is the one who will bring the truth forth in our lives. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus. In, in chapter 16, it says in verse 14 that he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he is to make known to you. So he glorifies Jesus in the respect that he is testifying of Jesus. He is making known to the world through the church, us here this morning, the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit, ultimately, who is glorifying Jesus, bringing attention to Jesus, lifting him up and testifying about him to the world. That is why he is the spirit of truth. So he teaches us, each one of us. Now, I am sitting up here this morning, hopefully sharing with you, imparting to you some truth from the word of God. But ultimately, in a very real sense, it's not me who's teaching you. It's the Holy Spirit within you who is speaking to you. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. It says, you have no need that any man teach you, but the anointing or the Holy Spirit within you, it is the one that teaches you. So each one of you, as the Holy Spirit indwells you, is being taught of the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ. Every time you pick up this book and read it, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Sometimes you don't even have this book in your hand. You're just walking along, and there's an impression that you have. Have you had this experience? An impression you have about Jesus Christ. And you're like, where did that come from? What was that thought originating from? It's the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this is part of that ethereal aspect of the Holy Spirit. You can't see the Spirit You can't embrace the Spirit as the disciples did Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is communicating, is speaking, is testifying, is glorifying Jesus Christ in your life. And then through you, the Holy Spirit is speaking to the world, convicting them. Look what it says in verse uh, 8. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will prove, or as Cody was talking about this morning, convict the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can no longer see me. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So as the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit convicts 
all of us at some point in our lives. As a, non- as a non-believer, he convicts us about sin, the fact that we need to believe in or trust in Jesus Christ. See, that, the ultimate sin is unbelief. Have you ever wondered if you committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? Anybody in here ever had that discussion or had that concern? Have I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? Well, this is the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's unbelief. It's a failure to believe in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will convict the world about sin because they do not believe in me. And if you reject the Holy Spirit's conviction about sin, Jesus said there's no forgiveness for that. Why is that? Why do you suppose there's no forgiveness for unbelief? Because God the Father set it up. It talks about this in in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. There remains, therefore, no sacrifice for sin for those who reject the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus is it. There's no other sacrifice that God is going to send to deal with humanity's rebellion against him other than his son. So the sin against the Holy Spirit is to reject that conviction, to say, I am not going to believe in Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit is at work convicting the world of sin, saying Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and you must believe in him. If you reject that, you have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. But he's also convicting the world about righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father. This is a conviction that tells us, that communicates to us, that Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the righteousness that God demanded because he is able to ascend into the very presence of God as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. So the righteousness of God was fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is victorious over sin. The resurrection proves that. The ascension into heaven proves that. Righteousness is what the Holy Spirit convicts us with regards to, that Jesus Christ was the righteous sacrifice for sin. And then finally, he convicts us or reproves us about judgment. Because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Satan was defeated at the cross. This is so important for you to understand because you struggle with it. I know you do. So do I. Satan comes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Deceiving you into thinking that God doesn't love you. If God really loved you, He wouldn't let you be going through this that you're going through. If God really loved you, something different would be happening in your life. That's the voice of Satan. But here's the reality, and this is what the Holy Spirit will help you to understand, that Satan has been judged. Sin has been defeated. The prince of this world now stands condemned. You have authority over Satan in the name of Jesus Christ. You have power to rebuke that voice of deception through the Holy Spirit that resides within you. 
So the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, convicting us of unbelief. He is convicting uh, the world of righteousness, that Jesus Christ has ascended victorious into heaven as a perfect sacrifice. And he's convicting the world, the church, with regards to the fact that we are triumphant in Christ over the enemy of our souls, the accuser of the brethren. And that's a hallelujah, church. When you walk out these doors, when those voices speak to you, and I'm not suggesting that anybody in here is hearing voices in the respect of mental illness. I'm talking about the very real spiritual voices that you do hear. We don't see them, but I've told you many times, if we could, there would be angels throughout this sanctuary surrounding us. Demons, too. They're all at work. Who are you going to believe? The Holy Spirit would have you believe the gospel. Now, this is important, and this is what I'm going to conclude with. It says in verse 13 that the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. There is an aspect of our relationship with the Holy Spirit wherein he teaches us, informs us, illuminates our mind with regards to what the truth is. It's more of an educational experience. We learn things about Jesus. We learn things from the scriptures. But there's an aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry that is talked about here in verse 13, where he guides us into truth. And that is applicational, experiential reality with truth. Because, you know, if, if you're a hearer only, James said, you're sort of missing the boat. You can get truth from the Holy Spirit up here, but unless you apply it and live it, you, you're not a doer. And there's an aspect to the Holy Spirit's ministry where he guides us into applicational truth, where our lives become more than just head knowledge about Jesus, but a living, breathing, spiritual journey that we are on. It says in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, that all those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So that's my question to you this morning. Are you being led by the Holy Spirit, in your life. Not just are you studying the Bible, that's a great starting point, but do you have a living relationship with the Holy Spirit whereby you know when he's speaking to you? And you know, either th because you're sensing that still small voice communicating something to you, or the circumstances of your life are dictating that God is directing you in a certain fashion. If you are being led by the Holy Spirit, if you are being guided by the Holy Spirit in that way, you are a son and a daughter of, of God. Now, I liken it to Alicia's experience with the choir. The choir all works off of the same piece of music, right? You're all looking at the same piece of music. That's like us as believers working off of this book. This is our music sheet that we're operating off of. And Alicia is like the Holy Spirit. She is not just teaching the choir about the piece of music, 
that they are going to perform. But she's guiding them into an experience with that piece of music. I hear her all the time as I'm in my office, and, and she's working with the choir here on Sunday mornings. She'll call them to a per certain section of the piece, and she said, now you, you need to pay attention to this piece or this part of the piece. You need to elevate your voice or you need to soften. Just this morning, there at the conclusion of the song, the first time through, be still and know that I am God. Be still. And she was trying to get them to whisper, the be still at the conclusion. But the first time, they didn't whisper so well. They sort of said, be still. She said, no, I want you to whisper. Be still. And that's how the Holy Spirit works with us, working off of this, this piece of music, directing us into a performance of the music, our lives. And we need to be focused on paying attention to our director, the Holy Spirit, who is guiding us into truth. And we need to come to practice with the right piece of music. This may date me some, but imagine someone shows up a choir practice, and they don't have the piece of music that Alicia wants to be leading them off of, Be Thou My Vision, but they come in with an Archie's comic. And so Alicia is trying to direct the choir on Be Thou My Vision, and they're back there reading about Jughead and Archie and Reggie and the whole gang. person who's reading the Archie's comic is not going to be singing Be Thou My Vision. Regardless of Alicia's best efforts to direct them, they're going to be singing Sugar, Sugar. Okay, now, honestly, how many, raise your hands. How many of you knew the reference I just was making? Okay, most of you, okay. But it's true, and, and, and that's what happens in the church so often, is we're walking around reading Archie comics, instead of be thou my vision. And the Holy Spirit's trying to speak to us, convict us, redirect us to the right piece of music. And then when we get on the right piece of music and we're watching the Holy Spirit, we're tending to the Holy Spirit's voice in our lives, he directs us. Sometimes he speaks to us through uh, the word. Sometimes he speaks to us in that still, small voice. Other times he speaks to us through life circumstances. In 2008, about 2008, Christy and I began to, we always loved to go on long walks, and we would have conversations about a variety of things. But around 2008, we began to talk about where would we move if we ever moved from Fruta? And we talked about the different kinds of towns we might move to, and we agreed that it, wouldn't, it would be really nice to move to a small mountain town. Yeah, a small mountain town. But, you know, that's as far as the conversation ever went because we had no intention of moving. I had worked for almost 25 years at Human Services, the kind of government job that you never lose. And so I was situated. She was teaching. And we were where we thought we were always going to be. But we still had those conversations. There was something in our heart that was speaking to us about living in a small mountain town. Well, 2008, Christy's mom passed away after a long battle with lupus. And that began a series of events that just sort of ultimately rocked our world. In 2010, my brother-in-law died from complications to uh, kidney failure. And then in 2010 also, Christy got laid off from her job. A little bit later, about six months later, 
the government job I had that I thought was impossible to lose, I got laid off from. I was on the wrong side of the political fence, and I got laid off. And so here I am, 2011, I'm 51 years old, and I'm jobless, and my wife's jobless. And we've had a couple of deaths in our family. My mom is near death because of a long battle with uh, vascular dementia. And we're, so we're traveling back and forth to Kansas. And in the midst of all of that, I get a call from a person here in Gunnison. Hey, I saw the newspaper article. For some reason, they put my layoff on the front page of the Daily Sentinel. You know, <laughs> not exactly how I envisioned going out, but um, I get a call from the director here. That says, I saw the article in the paper, and we need a, a child and family services manager. Are you interested? And at that point, this was about five months into my unemployment, I'm thinking, okay, I really don't want to go back into human services. But we've been making these trips. Money's been going out. No money's been coming in. So I said, okay, I'll come and do it for a little while. So I started in June here in Gunnison, working temporarily for the county. Well, a couple of months later, they offered me the job full-time, permanent. And I still remember the conversation I, I had with the director, Renee Brown. I said, no, Renee, I'm just, I, I don't think that this is where God wants me. I, I think he wants me back in the ministry. So I came that night to the motel that they had put us up, and I told Christy what I had shared with Renee. <laughs> and Christy says, she was such a good Christian wife. She said, okay. We don't have any money coming in. Um, we've been offered a full-time job. But she was willing to go with me because she, she knew I had this sense that I wanted to get back into ministry. And I knew after talking with her, I had to take the job. It's like, you're right. How stupid am I, you know, to continue to spit into the wind here. So the next morning I took the job. As you all know, I ended up uh, here for four years working in human services until both my parents had passed and that sense of calling to the ministry just reawakened in me. There was a period of time after my, my dad passed, about three months, where I was just strongly sensing that God was calling me back into the ministry. But I had no clue. I mean, here I am. We've gone through all the stuff I just shared with you. Uh, we're finally getting settled in this little mountain town that we had been talking about since 2008, and Steve's the pastor here, you know, he's settled in, and I love Steve, he's a great pastor, so it's like, what are you speaking to me, God, what's this all about? Well, a couple months later, Steve made his announcement, retired, and here I am. My point in sharing this story with you is to let you know that the circumstances in your life sometimes don't look exactly like you would have them to look. Sometimes they're far afield of what you would have them look like. And yet, if you are being led by the Spirit of God, you are a son or a daughter of God. The Holy Spirit is moving you through those circumstances. If your ears, spiritually speaking, are open, God is going to be able to direct you through whatever pain, through whatever challenge, 
you are going through and get you to that point that he wants you in. He has a plan for your life, just like he had a plan for my life. He was speaking to me in that still, small voice on those long walks with Christy about living in a small mountain town. He was speaking to me all through those years of loss and discouragement about stepping back into ministry. Something that I tried to do on my own after my layoff, but was absolutely a failure at. Because he had a different plan for me. He's the spirit of truth that will guide you into all truth. He's the choir director that is teaching you about the music. He's your advocate who will come alongside as you go through those times of mourning, of loss, of failure, whatever it is. He comes alongside to help. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you've given us the Holy Spirit. Jesus, I am so thankful that you are with the Father in heaven and that the Holy Spirit resides with us, in us, and upon us. And I pray for this congregation here this morning that each one of us would grow in our relationship to the Holy Spirit, a very challenging uh, relationship uh, to enter into. Just as you yourself said, Jesus, the Holy Spirit's like the wind. We can't see it, but we see the effects of it. And I pray that each one of us would grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit and that we would keep our eyes focused steadfastly upon him as he teaches us, as he directs us, as he testifies and glorifies Jesus Christ in our lives and through our lives. As Cody was saying this morning, Lord, may our so hearts be soft so that you can convict us where you need to of those areas of our lives that are not lining up with the music when we've gotten off of the page and we're beginning to read about Jughead instead of about Jesus. Help us, Lord, to always come back to you. In Jesus' name, we pray, amen.